welcome to the broadcast. It's my great joy to have Dr. Dan Spader back on the broadcast. Dan and I go back a number of years. We were looking at our In Context previous podcast, and we chatted about discipleship in the past. Dan is a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute, Trinity Evangelical School of Divinity. And Dan really, I mean, the fact that his name is D goes with discipleship. He is a dedicated disciple maker. And that's one of the things I so love about him. More than a million people in a hundred countries have been trained through Dan's materials. And in some cases, his hands-on training and development with some of these churches, which you'll hear about in our chat. He's the founder of Sun Life Ministries and currently serves as the president of the Global Youth Initiative. He's a lifelong disciple maker. Again, more than a million people have gone through his programs. And you might know his four chair discipling, and we're going to talk about some new materials that are called Like Jesus. But Dan, let's jump right into it. You and I have been friends for a number of years, and I was, um, let's just say I was frustrated with the lack of churches today, that they're more concerned with social constructs and critical race theory and BLM and social justice, and, and those are important things. Please don't hear me say they're unimportant, but that has moved things like discipleship off center stage. So give me your diagnosis, first of all, say in the past 20, 30 years, were churches doing discipleship better then? And where do you think we are now? There's pluses and minus in this. I think, I remember 30, 40 years ago when we started training in the Great Commission, and the command being to go and make disciples, with the emphasis, the command there being disciple-making when we began to train on that, that was pretty radical because uh, we were seeker sensitive or Sunday school driven or purpose driven, a lot of different themes, but not a whole lot of thought on making disciples like Jesus did and what that looked like. But I'm encouraged now on one level because I find more and more churches are talking about disciple making. They're talking about making disciples who can make disciples, which I think is a mandate because I don't think you've made a disciple until they reproduce. So we're talking about making disciples who can reproduce. And I find more and more talking about that. But here's my fear, Michael. It's just becoming a phrase. And like the church every 10 years picks up a new phrase and we work that phrase, we write books on that phrase. And then we wear out that phrase and move on to something else. And that that's always been my fear, because the moment yeah. you do that with the Great Commission, what do you go to next? You know, the Great Commission is our mission, and the core of the Great Commission is making disciples who can reproduce. Jesus five different times gave us that commission. What do you think? Why do churches feel like they have to go with the, I call them trends, isms, and ologies, you know, yeah. and the language drives me nuts. I got nothing against the phrase spiritual formation, but I go, call it discipleship. Why do we have to invent new nomenclature, Dan? I don't understand this. I, I don't know. I think it sells books. It sells new Thanks. training. It sells new material. And so we've got to restate it. I'm not totally against restating it, but I'm really right. big on just get back to the biblical understanding of this. And this is, I'll, I'll just talk with you about this, and I'll talk very honestly, even the word discipleship. Now, I understand when people say discipleship, that word was not coined until 1850. 
uh, by a man by the name of Charles Adams, who began to separate the phrase making disciples into two parts. One part he called evangelism, bringing people yeah. to Christ, took the Greek word euangelizmai, it says we got to bring people to Christ, and then we got to grow people up in Christ and call that discipleship. The first understanding I have of that word being coined. And so my passion, and I, I think the passion of the church needs to be to get back to the original intent of Jesus when he said, go and make disciples. And that original intent was just not deepening people in God's word or deepening people in their faith. I think the original intent of Jesus, where you go, that's the winning people to Christ. So discipleship begins with evangelism, and then you grow people up in Christ, and that's how the word discipleship is usually used, and then you teach them to go back and win others. And so biblical discipleship begins with evangelism and ends with evangelism. Now, I, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I've had to work hard at that. I love to teach Christians go deeper, but disciple-making Jesus style is about the whole process of winning the lost, growing the believer, and then equipping the few workers to go back and repeat the process. Mm -hmm. So disciple-making is our mission, not discipleship. I appreciate you saying that. I've been arguing for 40 years that discipleship and I appreciate your definition of it, but it's not two parts. It's not winning and then discipling. It's one and done. He didn't say go evangelize and disciple a few. He said, as you go, make these followers, make these students of mine. And you already said it, but help us again. Give me Dan Spader's best biblical definition of what is a disciple. A disciple is someone who follows Christ, is being changed by Christ, and committed to the mission of Christ. And I get that out of Matthew 4, where he says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So a disciple is someone who is following Christ, who has a loyalty to the king. He's following Christ. And that's what the word methetes, disciple, means to follow, be a student, be a learner. He follows Christ, is being changed by Christ. I will make you. God's agenda is to transform us inside out. Being made in the image of Christ and then committed to the mission of Christ. I will make you fishers of men. I'll teach you to reproduce. That's why I always say you're not a fully trained disciple if you haven't made a disciple. Because disciple-making demands reproduction. Now, I don't want to put guilt on anybody here. But if you have the gift of serving, equip others to serve. If you have the gift of giving, equip others to give. If you have the gift of evangelism, equip others to win people. So we reproduce who we are. Reproduction is always God's agenda. It's always the fruit of the Spirit. And fruit is always a picture of reproduction. And Jesus said, talked in John 15 about no fruit, fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. And by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So a disciple is someone who follows Christ, is being changed by Christ, and committed to the mission of Christ. Then a disciple maker is someone who helps others follow Christ, helps others be changed. By Christ and helps others commit to the mission of Christ. Now, you've had some 
great in small projects, but you had an enormous project. You went to Louisville to help a church to train how many disciple makers? Well, they have they have a staff of about 400 people, 350, 400 staff. And it's a church, it's a mega church. It's, you know, numbers are hard to calculate, but they have 25 to 35,000 people coming every Sunday. And, and and when you have these, they call them super churches now, I think. And when you have these super churches, we know that a large percentage of people in the pew, so to speak, are not, they're nominal believers, maybe not even Christians. So how do you start taking, let's say, north of 350, 400 staff and say, Okay, are we, is this a weekend seminar, Dan? You go down there and do a weekend seminar and make them all disciple makers? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Um, <laughs> disciple, making, disciple making is helping people <laughs> follow Christ, be changed by Christ, and commit to the mission of Christ. I always, my whole strategy of making disciples is wrapped around three words, train, coach, and mentor. So first you got to teach then you got to coach people back to the teaching, help them live out that teaching, the truth of God's word. And then you have to mentor the few to reproduce. And my mission is not to make disciple makers. My mission in my life, the call of God upon my life, was to teach Jesus, the real Jesus. And I am passionately committed to making disciples and making disciples because I'm passionately committed to the real Jesus I see in scripture. Now, we can have a long discussion about it, but my whole commitment to disciple making started with a professor at Moody when I had been a Christian one year who said some of Christ's initial disciples could have been or probably were teenagers when Jesus began to work with them. And I was a part-time youth pastor at the time. I was shocked by that. I thought mm. Jesus worked with a bunch of old guys because I was 20. I knew Jesus was about 30. And so if you're 20, 30 years old. So, and so I went to him and I said, he said, yeah, that's true. John was probably 16 or 17. The other disciples, late teens, early 20s. Only Peter was married that we know. And so it just changed my picture of Jesus. I said, what did Jesus do with his youth group then? And the prof kind of laughed and because I'm working with teenagers. Right. And he said, well, you have to take a harmony of the Gospels. And this was Thomas Gundry. He had just compiled the Thomas Gundry Harmony of the Gospels. And he says, you ought to study. What did Jesus do first year? What did Jesus do second year? What did he do third year? And what did he do fourth year? Where did he, what did he say? What did he not say? What did he teach? What did he not say? And just study Jesus chronologically and get to know the real Jesus. Well, I'm an engineer by background. That was my, I got saved out of engineering. And that just made sense to me. So I spent the next 10 years just analyzing a harmony of the Gospels. What did Jesus do first year? Where did he go? What did he say? Who, what did he do? What did he not do? What did he do second year? We called our youth group Sun Life because we're trying to live the Son's life. We're trying to figure out mm. what I now call the real Jesus of Scripture. And Interesting. that understanding of Jesus rocked my world. Yeah. And here's what I love to say there, theologically, and if you want to talk theology for a second, and I don't want to lose people on this, but it's, there are five forms of Jesus in the Bible. Now, and I use the word form very carefully from the Greek word in Philippians 2, he came in the form of man, who came in the form of God, Morphe, but the three major forms of Jesus, before his incarnation, he was a creator of the world. He was a I sat at the right hand of God, God's son. 
He created everything you see. He appeared sometimes in the Old Testament as angel of the Lord. But that was the Jesus before the incarnate, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Then now we have the resurrected Jesus, the one who's the, the head of the church, who's sitting at the right hand of the Father, who's our intercessor. But what most people don't understand, I think, is the incarnate Jesus. I like to call him the I-Jesus. You know, you have iPhone, iPad, the (laughs) I-Jesus, incarnate Jesus. Because Jesus, for 30-plus years, walked on this earth as the second Adam. And 40 times, when I began to study the harmony of the Gospels, I began to discover over 40 times Jesus said, do what I've done, walk as I walked, follow the pattern I gave you. You know, we can't imitate the pre-incarnate Jesus because that's God. He's God. We can't imitate the resurrected Jesus because he's the head of the church. We're not the head of the church. He sit at the right hand of God. But we can imitate the incarnate Jesus, the Jesus that was fully God, but also fully human. And in his humanity, he was man as God intended man to be. That's why we call him the second Adam. In his humanity, never less than God, he chose to live his life never more than man. Woo! Think about that one. Never less than God, he chose to live his life never more than man. That's why Jesus said 40 times, do what I've done, walk as I walked, follow the pattern I gave you. So Jesus showed us how to make disciples. Jesus showed us how to create a movement of disciple making. And it's the degree to which we walk as Jesus walked is the degree that we can birth movements of multiplying disciples. And it doesn't matter what stage of life we're in. As a businessman, a farmer, a lawyer, a doctor, or a pastor, but we got to get back to the real Jesus. I am of the conviction that this is not a hobby. This is not a small group that meets, you know, now they don't meet weekly. They meet twice a month or monthly or quarterly. This is a first burner, all in big commitment. And you deal with this, you know, far more than me. I deal with it in local churches over the decades. And there's, you know, not to be unkind or indelicate, but there's few people that are willing. I used to tell people when we lived in the D.C. area, these men and women were incredibly disciplined, incredibly loyal, incredibly servant-wired. They would get up early and stay up late for the church, but that was an unusual worldview. But to say this is your, not just a hobby cliche, this is your spiritual hobby in that when you're not eight to five at work or at the Pentagon or music row, you're thinking about these men and women you're chasing, pursuing, helping them learn how to read scripture, asking them about their life, meeting with them, teaching them, exposing them to other Christians. Am I off there? I mean, this isn't something that I'm going to lead a small group or teach a Sunday class. This is an all-in deal, Dan. Well, and Michael, let me just no, I I would agree 100%, but I want want to why am I so passionate about disciple-making? I stumbled into disciple-making. I didn't start out studying disciple-making. I am passionate about making disciples who can make disciples because I'm passionate about the real Jesus. 
the Jesus that was fully God, fully man, that rocks my world every day, Mm. that Jesus that's a very deep well, that Jesus that was man is God intended man to be. And when you fall in love with that real Jesus, I, I want to do what he told me to do. And what's that? Go make disciples. So disciple making to me is not about a strategy, a program, a class, a curriculum. And I have all that stuff. It's about imparting Jesus to the real Jesus to people on the face of the earth. And I tell you, that's what's exciting. I don't even think the first century church talked a lot about disciple making. I mean, the term disappeared after the books of Acts, what, 19, the term making disciples disappeared. They make called saints or, or believers or the people of the way. You see, they were all about communicating the real Jesus to others. And that's what caused them to want to get up every day. And no matter what they did in the business world, the work world, they were vessels through whom were excited about the real Jesus. And you see, Michael, here's what I find most people in churches. They say, oh, I could never do what Jesus did because he's God and I'm not. That's a faulty understanding of the incarnate Jesus that walked on this earth. Jesus was fully God, but he veiled that deity so that his humanity could be fully expressed. That's Hebrews 2, Hebrews 5. And the beauty of that is, therefore, I can then do what Jesus did if I walk like Jesus walked. And, you know, we could go into a whole discussion what that looks like. But but Jesus 45 times slipped away to pray. Why? Because in his humanity, he didn't know how to do the next step, but he knew where to get the next step. Yeah. Howard Hendricks had enormous impact on me and still does, even though he's with the Lord. But he often talked about when you read the Gospels and see when Christ pulled away to pray, look carefully at what happened before and after. Because he, Jesus yes. was the always deliberate, always the intentional, never, oh, by the way, let's go to Samaria guy. He was always on a mission for, you know, to do what his father told him. And when he spends all night in prayer to pick the 12, so to speak, or all yeah. night, you know, before Gethsemane, who are we as mere yeah. mortals to think we can get away with this Christian life without at least looking at what the Savior did? And you're right. I, I think perhaps intrinsic in this discussion is, well, he wasn't just a man. And perhaps the esoteric Christian saying, yeah, but, and my counter back to you is, the question I want to come back to is, how do we encourage I hate guilt and shame when it comes to a pulpit or recruitment yes. or enlistment. How do we help people see the passion that you have? And I think I have friends that are just incredible about looking. When they get up in the morning, they see the world as, what does Jesus want me to do? How, does, how do I serve my Lord? Who are the people he's going to bring across my screen, literally or metaphorically? And I mean my culture. I think the uh, consumerism and materialism have distracted us. Social media has created a uh, insatiable comparison and conflict zone. And we have all these things working against us that weren't around maybe 20, 30 years ago. Right. How do we help folks in the church, whether they're 20 or 60, say, this is the life of Christ. And as you fall in love with who he is, you'll want to do what he did. Yeah. 
All I can say for that is is my journey in the process. <laughs> and okay, my journey in that process was I began to study Jesus chronologically. I began to develop a conviction. I got to do what Jesus did. And then I started trying really hard to do what Jesus did. And I met failure all the time. And I met frustration. And I finally came to the pot, God, I can't do this. And God in his still small voice says, now you're beginning to understand. You can't do it. Go back to my son. 1 John 2, 6 says this. If any of you claim to be in Christ, you must, it's a command, imperative, you must walk as. And I think the key word in this verse is the word as. You must walk as Jesus walked. When I read that verse, I went back and I said, well, then I've got to ask a deeper question. Not only what did Jesus do, but how did Jesus do what Jesus did in his humanity? Once I settled his humanity, full humanity, and that led me to, we have an acronym we call Holy Spirit Power. I was teaching this in Bangkok to a group of five, 600 staff there at Campus Crusade, and a guy came to me, he said, Dr. Spader, if you rearrange those words, it spells Holy Spirit Power. And I love acronyms because <laughs> they help me remember. Um, but, but here's, after 35 years of studying Jesus, I've narrowed how Jesus did down to these six character qualities. Now, again, you can study it okay. and figure your own out. But first off, he was Holy Spirit dependent. I mean, he was conceived by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, did miracles by the Spirit, raised by the Spirit. The Bible even says because of the Holy Spirit's presence, he did many miracles. I mean, everything Jesus did, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if mm -hmm. Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, what does that say about you and me? That's Romans 6, 7, and 8. It's through the Spirit we have a new way of living. So walk like Jesus, Holy Spirit dependent. Then P is prayerfully guided. 45 times he slipped away to pray. The busier he became, the more he prayed. And I could go on and on and about Jesus' prayer life. Well, we got to pray like Jesus prayed. Jesus didn't always know the next thing to do, but he knew where to get the next mm -hmm. step. He talked to his father. And you find the closer he gets to the cross, the more he's going to prayer. The bigger his ministry becomes, the more he's praying. His ministry was launched with 40 days of prayer, ended with prayer and a cross. So start praying like Jesus. Study those 45 times. Pray like Jesus. He didn't pray all the time, but he did pray. Right. Then O stands for obedience. He learned obedience. If Jesus, being perfect, had to learn obedience, what does that say to you and I? And it, again, we can unpack this. It's Hebrews tells us that he yeah. learned obedience through what he suffered. But basically, Jesus' obedience muscles at five years of age were not near as strong as obedience muscles at 20 and 30. So Jesus had to grow his obedience muscles. by learn. He learned obedience through suffering. And so when we suffer, let's grow stronger in our ability to obey. God wants to build obedience muscles. We always fail. Jesus never failed. And that's a powerful one. So W stands for word-centered. 54 times he quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. 48 different chapters he quoted from. He knew the word. He studied the word. He lived according to the word. He said, I must do this so that the word would be fulfilled. E, he always exalted his father and R, he had relationships of love and integrity with people around him. That's Holy Spirit power. That's how you walk as Jesus walked. 
Holy Spirit-dependent, prayerfully guided, obedience-learned, word-centered, exalt the Father in everything, and relationship to love and integrity. To the degree in which we walk with those qualities like Jesus, walk as Jesus walked, I believe is the degree to which we're going to see God bear fruit through our lives. I a hundred questions as I'm hearing you talk. <laughs> I'm looking out on the bell, I call it the bell curve audience, and I don't mean that condescending, but you have yeah. people in the average church that are, they don't know Genesis from Galatians, and you have people that know more than you do. You have people that are struggling, that are single, that are maybe sexual identity issues, that are divorced, single parents, you've got college kids that are, you know, being battered and pushed. You got people that have lost their spouse, you've got retirees, you have people with a lot of income, no income. And I look across that bell curve of the sheep that God has in front of you and me, and I ask myself, how do I encourage them that all those worldly real issues and pressures need to take a second place and you need to pursue Christ first and foremost, and out of that overflow, as Hendricks always mentioned, will come your interest in making disciples. Yeah, it's a great question, Michael, because there is a lot of pulls against what I'm saying. And I experience those pulls, too, just as you do. <laughs> um, yeah. To me, it's always coming back to spending time daily in God's Word, really working hard to discover the real Jesus of the Bible. And by the way, I'm not just talking the Gospels here, because all Scriptures point to Jesus. But the Gospels is a great place to start. Even more than we need to learn theology, we need to learn the real Jesus. Even more we need to learn how to act like a Christian, we need to know how did Jesus act. I am convinced the emphasis of Scripture is not what I'm supposed to do. The emphasis of God's Word is who He is and what He has done for us in His Son, Jesus. And when I keep that pattern, who God is, what he's done for us in Christ, then I begin to do for the proper reasons. And that's, and Michael, you know the Greek part of this. This is the indicative versus the imperative. That's Romans 1 to 12, who God is, what God's done for us. Now Romans 12, here's what we need to do. So when I study God's word, and I'm preaching on this in our church in a couple of weeks, when I study God's word, I got to look at God's word to get to know God first and foremost, and in what God's done for me. That's the grace, who God is and what he's done for. Before I open the word and say, oh, I got to do this. Oh, I got to do this. I find a lot of lay people who don't want to go into God's word because all they see yeah. is stuff they got to do. Or it's confusing or it's uh, boring or it's uh, too difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And when you start saying, I want to get to know you, Father, I want to get to know you, Jesus. And we go at the word in that way, allow him to reveal himself to us. And that's what he loves to do through his spirit. You, Jesus, I always say, is a very deep well. And for 52 years, I've been walking with the Lord. And every year mm -hmm. I go deeper in him. So yeah, it's a struggle. I mean, we can get dry. We can get stuck. We can get off on tangents, but that's why I love the name we called our ministry, our youth group, Sun Life, and then our ministry, Sun Life Ministries, because it's all about the son's life. 
And it's that simplicity I think we got to get back to. What did Jesus do? How can I do what Jesus did? And why did he do what he did? So, Now, you have a, a host of books that you've published, workbooks and whatnot, but more uh, newer material that you've put together, you're calling Like Jesus. Uh, walk us through these texts and how they work, Dan. Yeah, the seven years I spent at this mega church in Louisville, we trained all their staff in the life of Christ, and that's been my whole life, just teaching Jesus primarily, and then out of that, teaching how to make disciples. But as I began to train all the staff, they began to say, how do we get this out to the 30, 40, 50,000 people in the church? So we sat down and we began to work through what are the core principles, truths that lay people need to understand. And so we first did the study, Walk Like Jesus, and it's the the Holy Spirit power I just quickly walked through. It's a Bible Mm -hmm. study on what does it mean to walk like Jesus. And then we did a study called Four-Chair Discipling. What are the four challenges of Jesus? How did Jesus develop people? What chair are you in? What are the four chairs? That chair just being a metaphor of how Jesus developed fully trained reproducing disciples. You start off as seeker, then you become a new believer, a baby in Christ, then you become a teenager in Christ, adolescence, and you begin to reproduce, and then you become a grandparent because your disciple makes a disciple. So we look at how Jesus developed people. It should be our developmental process, and that's four-chair discipling. And the third resource we put together then was the last one. It's probably my favorite. was a study of John 17, what we call the seven disciplines of a disciple maker. We look at Jesus in his own words, some of the last words he gave us in the garden, his high priestly prayer. Jesus in his own words talked about seven I statements. I prayed for them. I protected them. I gave them the glory you gave me. I revealed you to them. So Jesus in that one prayer to his father tells us how he made his disciples. And, and so we call these seven disciplines of a disciple maker, and we package that in a very simple study called Live Like Jesus. And, and we've narrowed discipling down to three things. I teach men how to study the Bible and a group, a men's study I lead. And I say discipling is simple as three things. Praying, so you pray for those you care about. Non-Christians and Christians. You got family members that don't know Jesus. Jesus said, I prayed for them. You got new believers who know need to grow, pray for them. So Jesus, pray. You pray weekly, and then you care. You spend time with them. Jesus cared. He cared through his presence. I I revealed you to them. He cared through his purity. I keep I made myself holy that they might be holy. His presence, his purity, and and his protection. I protected them, he says. So you care for those people that you're investing in. And then you share with them what God's teaching you. He says, I gave them the words you gave me. I revealed you to them. And so through those simple words, we just try to train lay people to pray, care, and share. If you do those three things consistently, pray regularly, I say daily or weekly, care, meet with them once a month and just listen. How you doing? What are you learning? What's happening in your world? And then share what God's teaching you. You will be making disciples and you will be reproducing your life in others. And if you do that for 50 years, you have disciples all over the world. And I know that to be true because I've seen it done over and over again. I'm I'm just a pig farmer from South Dakota. I'm a simple boy. I'm not smart, 
I, the only thing I know how to do is write manuals and study the life of Jesus. So that's what I've done. But God's <laughs> multiplied. I have disciples now in 130 countries of the world. We have movements in 130 countries. Why? Not because of me. Not because of me, one iota. But because for 52 years, I've been praying for people God puts around me. I care for them and I share with them what God's taught me. And God's multiplied that. And, and that's what he wants to do for everybody. That is the abundant Christian life in my mind. Well, and you, you say that, but at the same time, God uses people. I'm always struck by the, the people that God has used in my life. It might be a, a woman who's got multiple sclerosis and lives in chronic pain, and she's taught me more about the life of Christ and, and living with pain than anybody I know. A friend that's had two liver transplants and almost died and has been through hell and back medically and shares Christ on the backstroke with most of the people he meets, and these aren't, you know, published authors with big names and conferences. These are Christians in the, quote, trenches of life who are trying to live out the life of Christ just as you have. So he uses people. We put all these three simple resources that I think in my 50 years of study just simplified the life of Christ into three yeah. Resources. We put them in a, it's called likejesus.church. And that'll all be in the show notes. I'm looking at the website as we chat, and that'll all be in the show notes, and they can get a little a sample pack of it if they want. And if you're a small sure. group leader, if you've if you've had a ministry in your home, even just, you know, quietly in your church, you've had a small group on marriage and family or teens, or maybe you're a student uh, volunteer in your church helping kids, that you need to take a look at this Like Jesus series, and we'll have all that information in the show notes. Of course, you don't need that because you have these web browsers that find things instantly. Um, <laughs> in conclusion, let me ask you for a story. Um, in all the years you've been doing this, tell us, I know it's hard to share one, but just pick one where most unlikely candidate, and you prayed for this person, you persevered with this person, you shared Christ with this person, and they came to Christ, and now they're living out the disciple-making life. I just did a series of videos for ministry for 500 pastors in the Philippines. So I ended with this story, and it's a true story. Probably about 45 years ago, when I was a youth pastor, brand new my faith, I invited one of my nieces to come to a camp I was conducting in Chicago area. She got on a bus, came from South Dakota, went to that camp. We were talking about what is the gospel. So the whole retreat was about that. And then, like Jesus did, I sent the whole youth group out two by two to share Christ in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. I took Danette with me because I didn't know if Danette knew the Lord or not. So we went out and on the beaches in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, was sharing the gospel. We shared with about three people and right we were ready to come back. Danette looked at me, says, Uncle Dan, she was only about 16 at the time. She says, you've been telling people about how, how to have Jesus in their life and, and to be a disciple of Jesus. And I, I don't think I've ever done that. Can I do that? And so I led Danette to Christ right there. I still remember a very precious moment. So I spent the next three days doing everything I could to teach her how to grow, be in the word, prayer, because I knew she was going back to an environment that was not hostile, but not supportive. I found out through the grapevine, she began to really grow, now married to a guy that became a pastor. But anyway, in the course of that, she 
was sharing with her younger sister, Dory. And make a long story short, Dory was only 12 years old. One night she was reading her first Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and before they went to bed and Dory said, her younger sister, I wish I could love people like that. And Danette had the wisdom to say, you can't unless you have Jesus in your life. Mm. And Dory said, how do I have Jesus in my life? Dory, then they got down on her knees, prayed. She led her younger sister, Dory, to Christ. Now, that's about all I knew about the story, except I knew as my nieces and nephews, they were growing. But I, I was 600 miles from them. I got a tragic phone call one day. Dory had been tragically killed in a car accident. She had four children, married a godly man. They asked if I'd come back to the funeral. I went back to the funeral, Lake Preston, South Dakota, in a church. They had to move it to a bigger church that could handle about 400 people. 600 people showed up. They had the windows open so people outside could hear We opened up this funeral service to testimonies that lasted over three and a half hours. Person after person, young and old, came forward and shared their testimony of Dory playing a role in their coming to Christ. It was like a revival. I wouldn't have known any of that had I not been there. That family is now over 120 total in in that family. Of my niece and nephew, because they had seven kids and grandkids and grandkids, all big families, 120 in that family. <laughs> and the last I talked to Danette, she said, probably 80% of our family are now Christ followers. One is in, wow. in we support in uh, Turkey working with Muslims underground. All the fruit, all the fruit of one opportunity to share the gospel, and that's multiplication. And I tell you, it's fun to get older and and look back <laughs> at that kind of stuff. And it's not well, me. It's I, you. Please have. It's not me. But God gave me that privilege. And you know what? If you do that, that's what fifty years of walking like Jesus walked produces. You'll have those kinds of stories, and that's what makes life so abundant. It's wonderful. Dan Spader, author, disciple maker, par excellence. Again, we'll have information in the show notes. Appreciate your friendship and appreciate your passion for Christ. And I pray that he gives you great health and longevity as you enjoy your grands and that they come to Christ and know him and deeply and carry on the legacy that they've seen their grandpa and grandma do. So God bless you and thank you for your time so, so much. Thanks, Michael. Enjoyed being with you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.